This is Tony. This is Matt. And this is What Did We Miss? The podcast where we resolve our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. How's it going, Matt? It's going okay. <laughs> what are you laughing about? <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's I'm okay. I'm so sorry. We just had a conversation. We were maybe talking for... F- it wasn't that long. No, it was maybe seven minutes. But if you... Listener... Listener, let me tell you something. You're missing out on R2-D2 smoking. That's right. That's right. Yeah. We're not going to rehash that. But I am going to suggest that you go on YouTube and you look up the old um, PSA where C-3PO berates R2-D2 into quitting cigarettes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember. I have no idea. I don't remember how we got there. Oh, geez. I don't remember either. Yeah. The world may never know. That was it. It was? Oh, it was. (laughs) We were talking about the old Tootsie Pop commercial. Oh, yeah. Uh, You had to be there, guys. Should we do our impersonation of the owl again? One, two, three. (laughs) And that was him crunching the pop, disappointed little boy. And and that's the sound of people turning off the podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. They're, they're so they're so irritated they're that so that disgusted. crunch was them throwing their iPhones out of their car window. Just like I can't bear to listen to podcasts ever again. This self indulgent douchebaggery will not stand in my Nissan Stanza. Do you have a Nissan Stanza? No, I just assume that most of our listeners drive Nissan Stanzas. That I bet you that's pretty accurate. Hmm. Mm. I don't know if we have analytics for that. I, we should look into that. Yeah, I think that's important. We do have enough listeners in Canada and Ireland for it to <laughs> differentiate them from everybody else. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that little sliver on the pie has transitioned from other to smaller slivers. Nice. Of specific places. So thank you if you're listening from British Columbia or Dublin. Dublin, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, but, we, have any, do we have any plants in either of those? <laughs> I don't. The people I know from Ireland aren't in Dublin. Hmm. Hmm. The plot thickens. The plot thickens. Speaking yeah. of things happening on the global stage um, and on brand for uh-huh. the things we talk about here, not a soccer fan necessarily, mm-hmm. not even a, a particularly big sports fan, although I've come to enjoy watching sports more recently. Uh, I watched the Women's World Cup final this past weekend. How was that? It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I think it was a good game. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not the person to to really say one way or the other, but I I really enjoyed myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think this was a big one for a lot of people for a couple of reasons. Uh, strictly speaking, in terms of sports, uh, I, their first ge- the U.S. team's first game in the tournament, they won 13 and nothing, which I think was demanded a little bit of attention. Um, it seems. I mean, again, I could be wrong. That seems unusual for a soccer game. It seems yeah. like a, a pretty steep. I have you know. no context for that. But anyway, like it, it, it became very, very clear very quickly that they were coming out to kick ass and you know uh, make a statement. Uh, and then, of course, there's a lot of um, back and forth in the political sphere. Um, Megan Rapino is very outspoken. You know, was asked about going to the White House if they won. Uh, I believe the quote was, I'm not going to the fucking White House. Um, our cartoon villain of a president took some pot shots at her on Twitter. Um, well, he's never done that before. No, it's very out of character. Very out uh, of character. But anyway, I think, you know, this was, um, it was a great sort of flashpoint. I think this team 
Um, and certainly some of the specific personalities on it were the sort of sports heroes for this moment. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't uh, expect myself to be as invested or interested. Uh, but there I was, uh, you know, checking the score occasionally throughout the day. It's happened all in France. So uh, uh, usually I was working when the games were on, but the, the, the finals was on a Sunday. Um, so, yeah, it was great. A friend invited me over. We watched it. I don't know. I don't get why some people think soccer's boring. Mm-hmm. Um, they seem to, you know, it's they're in constant motion. I mean, the game doesn't stop. Yeah, there is, um, you know, there is one penalty that they had to do a, a replay for, but short of like injuries or that kind of thing, they just go and they kind of roll that extra time. And I don't know. It's just uh, I was engaged the whole the whole ninety minutes. I really enjoyed myself. So, so are you a converted soccer fan? Yeah, I'm going to be one of those guys now that has really like specific opinions about European football oh, clubs. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm even saying football clubs. Ooh, look at you. Um, wasn't that a I feel like that was a community joke. There's an episode where Jeff had to pretend to be into soccer to like infiltrate something and he was oh. like, "Oh, please, I've been an American pretending to be into soccer for years." I've been over to uh Ireland quite a bit uh and Ooh, look at me. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) We just turned off our two listeners from Ireland. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say suck it, Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) And, and yeah, that's a big thing over there. And when we go over there is the soccer or the football jerseys. Oh, yeah. Hooligans. They're always watching the games. They always get the games on and stuff like that. And I'm always just like, because I'm... I just, yeah. Yeah. Because as it, we've established, I don't know anything about sports. Well, I was going to say, as as is known, um, once any of us step out beyond the borders of the United States, we just all transmutate into boorish <laughs> American stereotypes a la Tim Allen. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what happens. <laughs> uh, boorish American stereotypes. Mm-hmm. That's us. Yep. Mm-hmm. Can't say we don't have it coming most Speaking of the time. Speaking of boorish American stereotypes, today we're talking about fun home. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Something that every American knows about. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it's right up there with uh, Budweiser and apple pie. Yeah. Um, so tell me, what do you know about fun home? Uh, I really knew nothing about this prior to you suggesting sure. that we do it. You said we should do an episode about fun home. I didn't know what that was. You said so you had no context. I had for it? no context, but then you said it was by Alison Bechtel, uh-huh. and who I know from the Bechtel test, the Bechtel which test. was born out yes. of her her comic strip Dykes to Watch Out for. Yeah, and so for any listeners that are unfamiliar with the Bechtel test, it's basically does a movie have two or more uh, female characters? Do they talk to each other, and is it about something other than men? Basically posits this uh, test as a way to to kind of show how skewed the movie industry is. Well, it, it also seemed like it was kind of a, a personal in-joke with her and some friends, and it, it yeah. sort of took off uh, well after the comic. So I think that comic was published in the mid-'80s. It was like, well, so the comic, the series itself was from 83 till roughly 2008. She's recently brought it back now that Trump is back. 
Um, and I believe the Bechtel test, and I, it wasn't called that. It was just, you know, she just explained it within this comic strip was from 1985. Yeah. And in the, uh, I, I looked up the strip and it's it's great because it's these, it's these two women and they're walking by a theater and one was like, oh, let's go to a movie. And then the other one explains this set of rules she has. And as she's explaining it, the background are just different posters of just a bunch of other like muscular jock dudes with big guns, which, you know, in the mid 80s, it was all yeah. commando and cobra and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, the, the stinger at the end is she's like, yeah, I haven't seen a movie since Alien. <laughs> yeah. Which is great. Yeah. Uh, especially, you know, coming out of the 70s into the 80s. I mean, that was just loaded with super testosterone heavy uh auteur driven male directors from the 70s so uh but the Bechtel test itself really didn't become popular till maybe after Fun Home came out in 2006 yeah so the last 10 years it's really sort of taken yeah. on a life uh within film criticism um you know especially within um within feminist analysis of of pop culture but yeah it's just sort of became a thing that a lot of people, I assume, are familiar with that term if, if you're interested in TV and movies and, and follow that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I uh, had no other context for Alison Bechtel's work outside of it sort of creating this rubric for, for looking, yeah. at, looking at films. So Fun Home, uh, which is its full title is Fun Home, a Family Tragic Comic. And this is a graphic novel memoir that she put out in 2006 about her relationship to her father, her father's death and the mysteries surrounding his death and about her sexuality and about her coming out. So around the time, uh, 2006, I was going to the comic book store weekly and reading a lot about things broader than superhero comics. So I was trying to get my hands on as much um, independent books and, and graphic novels and Anything other than superheroes. Well, why? What, were you sort of, uh, was it, you know, uh, a, had it been a period of, of maybe you were, feel like you were outgrowing the mainstream, like the the comics from the big two, or were the were the stories sort of in a creative lull? Or what, what sort of drove you well, to, to look for this other type of... No, I mean, I was, I, I, it's unfair to say I stopped reading superhero stuff. I, I mean... There's always an ebb and flow there. Yeah, and, and, and listeners, he is wearing a Spider-Man T-shirt. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, it is a Steve Ditko drawing of oh, Spider-Man okay, from, fine. Ni- from the All 60s. All right, fine. So, so there's always this kind of up and down with that. And I think at the time, I was interested in being a comic book artist myself, and I was taking uh, sequential art classes, and I wanted the medium to be taken seriously by people other than myself. Mm-hmm. And part of that was projecting this air of someone that had a broader understanding of comics, whether that was Spider-Man, Calvin and Hobbes, or uh, Daniel Klaus. So I was reading uh, the aforementioned Daniel Klaus and stuff from Dark Horse Comics, which were sort of superhero adjacent. Uh, and then that eventually led to things like Craig Thompson's Blankets and today's Fun Home. And Fun Home is actually... Fun Home was, um, in 2006, uh, Time Magazine's Book of the Year. Yeah, this this made a lot of year-end lists uh, in publications where you don't typically think of them taking uh, this type of storytelling seriously. Yeah, 
not only did uh, comic book publications really take to this book, but, you know, it was fitting in amongst other books, book lists, not comic book lists. Uh, so that was a big deal. So at that time, that was very sort of revelatory. It was kind of opening the world up to what comics were capable that are not just superhero stories. Yeah, I have to imagine for someone who had been reading comics as long as you had to see you know, the New York Times take notice, that must have sent some some flags up that th- this needed to be oh, for investigated. Sure. And I remember like proselytizing in my comics class or my art classes at the time, figure drawing and all that stuff about the seriousness and the importance of why we need to take comic books seriously. And I kind of look back on that and you can be like, oh, shut up. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it was, it, was, it was a good time to get my, uh, my hands on a book like this. It's also a strange time period for me because, and, and, and this is kind of personal, but this was right around the same time that I met my biological father. Oh. There's some overlap as far as the mystery behind your parents and how they inform who you are and how you can never truly know what their intentions or their actions are or what they mean, or in my case, the absence of that and how that defines me or does this person define me even though they weren't in my life? So this book really kind of hit me when it came out. I, it felt like a good thing to kind of introduce to you uh, as a way to kind of broaden our palette of, of comic books beyond the superhero stuff that has dominated a lot of our earlier episodes. True. Yeah, absolutely. So I... I all right. So this is this is a, a bit of a, a, a revelation to me. I didn't, I didn't know you hadn't met your biological father until that late in your life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, um, and I think I mentioned this in the Fantastic Four episode uh, when I was talking about, you know, how I came to comics when I, I lived with my grandparents and my uncles till I was about seven. I had talked in that episode about how, uh, you know, my uncle's big drawer of comics and that's how I got introduced to it. And that was like a magic treasure chest for me. My mom got married uh, when I was seven and uh, my stepdad adopted me and so I took his last name and I say stepdad now just to give it context but he's my dad Um, so that's why a lot of times for instance right now it it, it could be kind of startling to hear that uh, I have a biological father who's not in my life because I talk about my stepdad as my real dad but yeah so right around when this book was coming out and I was going back to school for comic art uh, and I asked my mom if I could meet my bio dad. And so we kind of arranged things and it's a, it's, it's a very strange experience. <laughs> and I'm not sure how much detail I can get it. I should get into only because, you know, we're talking about, uh, Oh yeah, no, we're talking about comics and I don't want to make this too personal, but Oh yeah, yeah. No, whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah. Um, I met him and, and at the time, I guess he was engaged to this woman. Uh, he, filled in his life story, drugs, yada, yada, yada. One of the interesting things to me was the story that he told me and the story I got from my grandparents who were kind of, who are integral to the story because they were, my mom was really young. My mom was 16. My grandparents obviously were intervening uh, in in the choices that were being made following the, the announcement of the pregnancy. Uh, so I get a different story from my bio dad than I get from my mom, than I get from my grandparents, than I get from my uncle. And that's what this book is about. Yeah. Is, is how 
as much as you could possibly try, you're never going to have the truth. And all you can really do is try to make sense of the pieces that are given to you. Wow, that's... <laughs> that, yeah, I, like, like, you, like you said, I mean, that's, that is what this book is about. I, I mean, beyond it being about, um, you know, a woman sort of um, realizing and then um, coming out to her, her family with her, um, you know, her sexuality. She's also learning that her father lived a life as a, a closeted homosexual and had been having these relationships with teenage boys. And her father is sort of established as this very detail-oriented, obsessed. He has refinished this home that, that she grew up in in meticulous detail. Um, you know, uh, nothing could be out of place. So here is a man who literally was crafting an illusion around him. And there are just there are, there are a lot of layers. Because, um, I mean, it, it is, you know, the, the age she is at sort of when she comes out to her family and she's starting to grapple with these things. I feel like that's an age where a lot of us start to see, for lack of a better word, the, the cracks in the sort of image we've had as had of our parents growing up. You start to realize that they're just people. You start to recognize, you know, maybe fl- what you perceived as flaws as a, as a child and you're sort of uh, seeing f- from uh, a different perspective now that you're sort of taking those first steps into adulthood. But Allison and her father, there were a lot of layers between his truth and and sort of what she had grown up with. And then there's a lot to unpack in this book. For instance, there's a moment where she's trying to dress more tomboyish, Mm -hmm. uh, for lack of a better term. And he's trying to prevent her. He's trying to make her look, uh, you know, as he says, a little more girly or, or pretty. And she's like, he's like, you're pretty. Embrace this. And so there's that kind of him imposing this thing on her, on her sexuality, because he can't do that himself. She says something to the effect of he lusted after masculine beauty. She envied it. Yes. So while he was, you know, secretly pining for, you know, what he was truly attracted to, he was preventing her from embracing that same ideal that she wanted for herself, not, you know, romantically, but self-actualizing. Like, I want to dress like these men my father admires. Um, there are sequences with them talking about men's fashion as well. She very early on exhibited her truth and fortunately was, was able to express it and, and realize it in a way that her, her father never could, which is one of the one of several tragedies that play out here. She also discovers that she's a lesbian by reading about it in a book. Yeah. Um, and when she finally decides to come out shortly thereafter is when her father dies. And there's some mystery surrounding his death on whether or not it was a suicide. Which she leans towards suspecting that it was. She also wonders whether or not it was her coming out that kind of did it. Yeah. Uh, synchronicity and, and sort of yeah. coincidence plays a lot into this as well. There There's some some moments that play out sort of in their family dynamic that, that line up with some bigger uh, unforeseen circumstances. Like um, her dad goes into therapy as sort of a what is revealed to be like a, a sort of plea deal for this incident involving a teenage boy who was sort of, uh, you know, he was sort of given uh, the ultimatum of, you know, you can go see a therapist for this thing you're afflicted with and, and 
will look the other way this time. And they tell Allison that he's in court because he's giving alcohol to young right. boys. So her dad starts to go to therapy as a result of some legal repercussions. She gets her first period. The whole uh, Watergate scandal is happening. Uh, her mom is in this big play. There is these sort of, and that it's sort of, uh, you know, when when these sort of big milestones happen, it's very easy for us to sort of attach these outside instances to them. Uh, later, when when everything comes to a head, uh, it's the trial for the beer thing. Nixon resigns, um, and then there's this big storm that sort of destroys their yard and is sort of uh, culminating in this almost cinematic sort of uh, representation of all the the sort of turmoil that's just simmering under the surface at their house. So she she explores the idea that that sort of like she has in these other moments that there is um there may have not been simply a matter of coincidence with the timing of her coming out and and then her father's sudden death. Yeah, and she regrets, well not regret regret isn't the right word after all the complications and the difficulty that she has with her relationship with her father, she feels guilty because she again is 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 an out woman and he never had that opportunity. And she wonders kind of what his life would have been like. And there's this wonderful passage in the book um, that I'll read. And the thing about this comic, too, is like, and we'll get into this in a bit. It reads like a book. Yeah. I was really. It it, it feels like a lot of it's basically her first person narration. And it there's a lot of prose in it. And it doesn't read like a typical comic. But back to this quote from the book. Or maybe I'm trying to render my senseless personal loss meaningful by linking it, however posthumously, to more coherent narrative. A narrative of injustice, sexual shame and fear of life considered expendable. It's tempting to say that, in fact, this is my father's story. There's a certain emotional expedience to claiming him as a tragic victim of homophobia, but that's a problematic line of thought. For one thing, it makes it harder for me to blame him. And for another, it leads to a peculiarly literal cul-de-sac. If my father had come out in his youth, if he had not met and married my mother, where would that leave me? That's kind of the book in a nutshell, mm-hmm. where she's reconciling her identity with her father's identity and her relationship with him uh, and with his death. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there are a lot of similarities between the two of them, despite the, the differences that she, she highlights from, you know, when she was younger. You know, beyond their shared experience, both being gay, you know, there, she has... Um, a period of her life where she is sort of overcome by anxiety and OCD. And her father is, you know, as I had mentioned, very, very precise and exacting. And they have that. She's very similar. Yeah, they're similar yeah. in that way. Um, she talks about, um, because you, you've already mentioned her father and how he was kind of meticulous with recreating the details of their Victorian home. Um, but she, there's a quote uh, uh, from her about the making of Fun Home, which kind of describes her in a similar light, but she said, I've always been a careful archivist of my own life. I've kept a journal since I was 10. I've been logging my income and expenses since I was 13. All this detritus came in handy as I wrote Fun Home, as a corrective to the inevitable distortions of memory. I discovered that the actual documentary truth was almost always richer and more surprising than the way I had had remembered a particular event. 
and it was certainly more interesting than any possible way I could have fictionalized it. Yeah. I also read a quote, and I don't have it in front of me, so I'm paraphrasing, that she says that the, because it took her about seven years, I think, to seven make this. Years. And she said the, um, the, the attention to detail was, was thanks to a barely in control OCD. Yeah, and, and, and there's a, a section of the book where she really gets into depth with her OCD, where she, in her diary, would kind of detail every day, and she would you know, have to count things and end on even numbers or take certain steps or step on s- certain things a certain way. But it carried into her diary because she would make these kind of... She uh, created almost like a shorthand for herself. Yeah. Um, but she'd also make these... What did she call it? Like, she had a name for it. It's like these shapes that she would do over the whole diary entry. Right, yeah. I know what you're talking about. I can't remember what she called them. Um, she said, matters worsened in my diary. To save time, I created a shorthand version of, I think, a curvy circumflex. And then eventually, this kind of curvy gesture would take up full pages. And she'd just draw over all of her diary entries until they were illegible. Yeah, I, I, the whole section with her diaries, I found really fascinating because I could relate really closely. When I was a teenager, I didn't do a lot of journaling. And Allison was a very dedicated diarist throughout her youth. As she got into her, her teen years, they started to sort of, they evolved from these sort of uh, blunt facts where she would say, you know, she would very like, in a very youthful way, like narrate her day. I did blank. So-and-so did this at school, blah, blah, blah. Um, and they just became these very vague emotional entries they were sort of there were fewer words but they were all super loaded uh, almost as if she was she was embarrassed even to sort of confess to herself what whatever it was she was feeling which having gone through some of my own personal journals from around that time it's the same thing I don't know what I was being cryptic about the the idea that someone else might read it maybe but um you know, and it feeds into, you know, a young person sort of coming to terms with their sexuality, being so uncomfortable or just sort of in the dark about what's happening. She starts to refer to her, her period as uh, ending mm-hmm. because she was also learning. Al- this is when she was also starting to learn algebra. And, you know, the fact the the idea that a letter could stand in for a, an unknown quantity sort of. She, she translated that into things that were happening to her body and as she was sort of trying to get her head around what was happening to her. She also uses ending as a, a, an abbreviation for masturbation mm-hmm. uh, as she got older. Um, but she had a difficult time telling her mother about her, her first period. And the book is primarily about her and her father, but she does have a difficult relationship with her mother as well. Yeah, yeah. The note I took on the difference between her parents were... Um, you know, her dad was always very, you're doing it wrong. Uh, her mom was always, don't bother me. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. Uh, and her parents met uh, by doing a play together. Uh, and he would send letters to her and, and reference uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. And the book has a lot of these kind of literary allusions where she's constantly referencing, you know, Fitzgerald and Proust and... Yeah, and there's another thing she had in common with her father. He was he was an English teacher. He was um, a very well-read person. He, uh, you know, earlier she she kind of makes a joke about him having the audacity to to say that he had a library in their house. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. Like, and they bonded over this one time where he was her 
uh, literary teacher. Yeah. And that was the only time that they felt this close connection. And she said it felt like she was the only one in the class Mm -hmm. because she was the only one interested in the material and the only one responding to him. Yeah. But I think the other important thing about the books that he shared with her is that a lot of them were maybe coded gay. And that so she learned a lot about these older works that were maybe alluded to different forms of sexuality, but because of the time that they were written where maybe it was more subtext than text. That was kind of an eye-opening thing for me the first time I read this book of like, oh, these older things have so many different meanings to different people, which is funny because like earlier on, she rejects these things. She's always rejecting these interpretations of of different older books. And as she gets older and she makes her own comics, she has this these kind of literary aspirations and, and, and so much subtext that she puts into her own stories. So it's kind of interesting to mm-hmm. see her do that full circle kind of thing. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, her mom too, there's a, a sequence in the book where her mother is in a production of The Important of Being Earnest. And you know Oscar Wilde, I think she says in the book, did served prison time for yeah. you know perversions and that, that sort of thing. And, and then her sort of... Um, Finding the humor and the the sort of like you said the the, the coded subtext within the the wordplay because she was, she would help her mom read lines and she was slowly sort of be, yeah becoming aware of of what was happening below the surface of of these texts that she was being exposed to. Let's talk a bit about the artwork. I think that's also one of the big things that um, I gravitate towards when when I reread the book. Uh, she has a pretty it's deceptively simple pen and ink style Mm -hmm. and the whole book is done um uh, with the pen and ink but then kind of like a bluish gray wash underneath things to give it shade or texture or depth but she has a very precise line while still it feels uh while it's precise it still feels kind of like it has some life to it. It's not like an. Ex- it's not like done with rulers or, or any kind of protractors or anything like that. It feels like her panels have that quality that like they were clearly drawn by a hand. They're not. They're not perfect boxes. Yeah, there is a perfection in her. Her form of her f- the the figures, even though she kind of simplifies faces to be a little more cartoony. She uses a lot of references. And well, yeah, she she photographed herself for a lot of it to, yeah. to stand in, and then she would use that as a reference for and for all the characters, not just for herself. Yeah, and there's such attention to detail, whether it be the houses or the backgrounds or background characters or the details of the car that they had when she was a child and or the fun home itself, which, again, the title is uh, alluding to a funeral home that her father worked in, which they dubbed the fun home, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which kind of gives you context for her sense of humor, but also for the family's kind of detachment uh, from maybe their feelings. Yeah. I mean, you have to be at the very least able to emotionally detach yourself from that type of work, if not be completely emotionally detached as a result of it. Completely. There's so much detail in, in, in maps and, and in, in paintings in the background or books. Like if she has a book, you know what's written on the spine. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what, all, the, all the period details too, even to yeah. like what her brothers and her were watching on TV when they were kids, um, the way their rooms were decorated. I find 
when reading this book that it's a lot like rifling through someone's box of photos. And she's right next to you explaining the photos and going over thing in meticulous detail. It, it feels like you've discovered something in someone's attic. Um, that's how the story is kind of, that's the, how she tells the story sure. through yeah. the detail. And it was surprisingly text heavy. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the visuals obviously did a lot of heavy lifting, but there was a lot of narration. I don't know that I've read a graphic novel where the, the word bubbles seemed like such a small portion of the text Mm -hmm. on the page. The characters don't talk a whole lot. No. It's mostly her narration, which, you know, is is extremely commendable for how powerful it is given that it has to be short. Like her her economy of language it's it goes beyond economy of language because she just she nails every sentiment she's going for. I, I mean I could imagine reading just the narration and, and it feeling pretty damn close to a complete work. It's all there. And then, uh, you know, my, my initial note on it was that um, sort of the reverse of my instinct for this type of thing where the, the narration boxes in comics tend to assist the visuals. Or over-explain. Right. Yeah. Yeah, this, this really struck this balance of, of this beautiful prose alongside these wonderful illustrations and it yeah it came to life in a way that I, I really was surprised by reading it through the first time in a quote she said i feel like cartoons function for me very much like maps and that they take a complex or confusing three-dimensional reality and iron it out into a much more manageable two-dimensional version that describes the book perfectly because she's taking these big concepts and these literary ideas and making them palatable via her drawings, these very detailed, yet cartoony. It's it's hard to describe because like when you, people think detail, most of the time they think something that looks realistic. Yeah, there's, she's not going for photorealism. No. It's almost, um, and it's funny because in, in one interview I'd read with her, someone made the comparison, I think speaking specifically about the comic strip she did through the 80s, um, comparing her to, to Gary Trudeau and oh, Dun- yeah. Doonesbury. Yeah. And I do feel like the her style, sort of visually, it, it sort of exists in that in that realm. Yeah, you know what I mean. She, her her two big um, artist influences are R. Crumb, uh, who's another big kind of '70s iconoclastic comic artist, and uh, and I may mispronounce this Hergé. Who, oh, Tintin. Tintin. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you could see. Both of those artists and all of her artwork, whether it's the meticulous pen and ink detail of R. Crumb or the expressive cartoonish figures of Hergé. She has this one, I, it killed me when it when it came up. She had this one great visual gag where, where her father is telling her that she's going to a therapist. And she, you know, the narration talks about how she imagined it. She imagined that as such a romantic thing, like her father is living a, a New Yorker cartoon. And she has a thought bubble, and there's a therapist drawn in the style of, you know, like kind of her version of a New Yorker cartoon. It's clearly like a, a different type of character that wouldn't exist in this world. And then later, there is uh, another scene that involves her father and the therapist somehow, but then she illustrates them together. But the it, he still looks like that cartoon picture she had in her mm-hmm. head. 
which is great. And she ha- she does play around with visuals like that. Too. And she has this great narrative trick where within the frame of whatever it is that she's she's drawn, she'll have a little box with an arrow in a descriptor. And she uses this throughout the whole book. And it's great because it's filling in tiny little details without having to include it into her narration. Oh, like like when she would show a, a, a map and the, the narration would be about how you know her father never really left the town he grew up in. And then you'd have a big overhead shot of of um, that part of Pennsylvania with the arrows pointing to where dad was born, where we live now, where uncle so-and-so lives. Yeah. Or in a frame on a, just a random page where it's just somewhere in their home and it's, it's this painting uh, of a cockatoo and there's a little caption underneath that says, honest to God, we had a painting of a cockatoo in the library. So it's again, it's like this little, like she's almost like curating her life mm-hmm. through her obsessive detailed diaries to her illustrations and um, through her memories of her family. And another quote, she said, perhaps my cool aesthetic distance itself does more to convey the Arctic climate of our family than any particular literary comparison, which talks about like, you know, the way she's able to talk about these stories and in the detail she talks about, there's almost like this detached kind of, well, for instance, she talks about uh, meeting up with a friend and and telling her friend that her father died and her friend doesn't believe her because she's laughing the whole time. Right. And because she has this sort of detached perspective on the whole thing. And obviously her father did too. And she wonders throughout the book, is, is, is was her father's detachment because of the reality that he had to live? Well, I mean, as far as her father in reality goes, you know, very early on there are scenes of her or her brothers making a mistake or you know, maybe breaking something or putting something back where her father did not intend for it to go. And he would sort of fly into a rage at any slight instance of the reality he was building sort of breaking down. And at at that point in the book, she has this, she has this great line about um, maybe there's just a lower bar for fathers. Like she has these moments that she recalls very fondly, but they're kind of outweighed by the moments where he was kind of terrifying. She does this smart thing, too, where she reveals the major plot points or the major things that happened to her anyway, right at the beginning. Whereas most modern like indie films will save like these kind of revelations for the back third of the movie. Oh, like like Book of Henry. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, that's a whole other clusterfuck. But yeah. Your typical Sundance indie dramedy where in the end you find out that the character has been suffering X, Y, or Z. And right away she lets you know that her father was sleeping with underage boys and that she herself had come out of the closet right when, shortly before he died. He died. The book itself is nonlinear. So she's constantly circling back to moments she's already introduced and giving us new information uh, to giving us to give us a different context for those scenes. Yeah, I mean, it seems crazy to think that that's such a bold move. I mean, if that's what <laughs> if that's what your story is about, why would you hide it? Like where yeah. I think I think there is so well, much more in this instance. I mean, there is so much more to mine from grappling with those things than sort of building up 
and then you know suggesting the 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 earth shaking sure consequences of 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 those things well i i think we're seeing it more with with movies because it's become this narrative trick and you know we have a bunch of screenwriting how to's like the save the cat storytelling device that's been used a lot uh where we're reducing storytelling down to xyz components and unfortunately a lot of people are doing this um you don't see it as much in in this form of comics anyway at least from my experience and i'm sure there's plenty of other autobiographical comics that i haven't read that maybe have done that but it was kind of refreshing coming back to this and 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 realizing how thoughtful the narrative is we had talked briefly you know i was checking in on you while while you were reading it and and you had uh you had expressed some reservations a bit not that you didn't like it but there was something that was holding you back um yeah i i don't know i think i was struggling to connect with it and i i think that has more to do with reading it for the first time at this age i think i can appreciate i mean i i i obviously really enjoyed everything we've talked about so far i think i was a little envious cuz the way you spoke about it and i you know i think maybe for me had I read this at a at a different age, I think it would have had a little more of an impact. You know, those things I was talking about earlier, that's those sort of those universal coming of age moments. I mean, you strip away the the details and the particulars, uh, and this is something that everybody experiences, sort of realizing who you are as an individual person, getting to understand who your parents really are as people and not as, you know, these sort of mythical god figures you've yeah created them in your in your head as a child i think that's so hard to do sometimes i was talking about that with some family and friends recently about how no matter the relationship with your parents there's going to be some damage there Mm -hmm. and it's hard to reconcile your hang-ups with your your parents if you have hang-ups, I'm sure there's some people like, oh, I love my parents. And I'm not saying I don't love my parents, but <laughs> but it's hard to reconcile maybe the damage that you felt you've you've inflicted from any kind of missteps in your upbringing to who they are as people and people just making choices and, and fucking up on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I've always been highly suspect of people who are like friends with their parents. Yeah. <laughs> as a wedding photographer, I see that more than I anticipated of like, oh, my, my best friend is my dad. My yeah. dad's my best man. And I'm always like, what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, me and my mom do everything together. Yeah. Why? <laughs> I guess I'm grateful that my mom will never listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we get a 50-50 chance of getting some hate mail from mine at this point, so. Oh, uh, no, your mom is nice. No, and it's not like, and that's no, no, not to disparage either of my parents. It's just that type of relationship. And I get along really well with my parents now. Yeah. Um, I do too. I'd say, you know, better than certainly at other points in my life. I think you learn as you get older how to navigate your relationship with your parents. Right. Where When you're younger, at least for me, there are moments where you're intentionally being antagonistic mm-hmm. because you're going against the grain or you don't understand the choices they're making. Yeah. And you also, you know, as you become more confident in who you are, you, you, you learn not, and not to say this in like a, like a snarky kind of way, but you learn... When not to give a shit about yeah. what they think. Oh, yeah. They don't have to like everything you do. You don't have to agree with each other and everything. But it's such a, that's a hard thing to, and I say that as if I am remotely close to feeling that way all the time. It's something I still, you know, struggle with. But 
it's not easy to see past them as your all-knowing, all-powerful parents. And we could joke that, you know, they're not going to listen to us bad-mouthing them right now. But Alison Bechtel, she showed her family, her mother and her, her siblings, the book as she was working on it. Oh, yeah. And she said it was very difficult because she's very, very open and mm-hmm. honest in this book. Um, yeah, she speaks very highly of her mother's ability to to recognize that this was something important that Allison needed to do as a person. This was her story, and she needed to get it out, and she needed to tell it. Um, you don't always get that blessing from no. people close to you when you're when you're doing this type of yeah. you know, autobiography. So she she did a follow up book to this called "Are You My Mother?" Right. Wait, have you read that? I haven't read it. I kind of want to now that I've revisited Fun Home. And it's fresh in my memory. Kind of want to just pick it up and, and, and see what it's like. But I hear it's good. Yeah, I'd be interested to check yeah. that out and as well. And she's currently working on a book called The Secret to Superhuman Strength. And this is about, I guess, another autobiographical book about her mortality. <laughs> That'll probably be my favorite one. Because, <laughs> you know, we love talking about death. <laughs> right. I didn't I didn't realize till too late that there's a musical version of this. Yeah. And we, we had sort of both realized too late in planning this episode, uh, there was a local theater company in Providence that did the the musical uh, a couple months ago now. And we just kind of didn't have our ducks in a row to maybe try yeah. to, to to get there to see the show. I, I think we found out about it kind of late in the run. Yeah. Um, or to I'm talk so to curious about it. to what it is, you know, how they approach it, because when you read the book, it's, it's heavy. Mm-hmm. I want to know how they approach writing songs about this stuff. Well, you know, I, I think it's, um, you know, there's that that sort of preconceived notion about what a Broadway musical is. Of course, yeah. Um, and I would, it, it, she seems very happy with, with yeah. how it turned out. So yeah, I, I think she's like a producer on it. I, I know a lot of Broadway musical fans will seek out the music before going to see the show, but I never understood that, at least for, for me personally. I want to go into the show cold. Like, I don't want to hear the songs beforehand. Like, a lot of Meg's students, they know all of Hamilton, yet mm-hmm. they've never seen it. Sure. Because they've, they've listened to the soundtrack so many times. I mean, I think something like this would be different. Uh, yeah, maybe. You know, because you're not going to... That's the thing about listening to a, a cast recording is you're, you're getting the whole story. It's funny because I mentioned to a few people that we were doing an episode on Fun Home and everyone just automatically assumes it's the musical. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that's, like, pierced the public consciousness a little more than the the comic has um, well yeah i mean i had mentioned this to my friend sophie who is his queer and said that you know this was really a formative piece of work the book and the 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 musical um so she she uh, got very excited when they heard that we were going to be doing this until they listened to it until they listened to it <laughs> we're sorry sophie we're so sorry uh, yeah her her initial comic dykes to watch out for was uh, an important work uh, for for lesbians at the time, and most of it, she was self syndicated, meaning she sought out papers to carry the the comic. She worked on it for a good seven years before that was her only job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then even before Fun Home, she was like, "If Fun Home doesn't, if it's not successful, I'm going to have to get a job." Yeah, because that's how difficult it is to be a cartoonist. It's a lot of work, a lot of research. Work night and day, drawing away, doing layouts, sure. coming up with the the text, the dialogue, the stories, the narratives, uh, and, and you do it all on your own. And especially, too, 
you know, this wasn't like you said, she was self syndicated. This wasn't uh this wasn't in the Sunday funnies. No, these you know, were it was in, in alternative yeah. publications. Um But it was a big deal to a lot of yeah. people. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, which is again, like the, the, the sheer amount of work that was on her to get it all done. I mean, that's I mean, it's a huge undertaking considering how long it went. I did I, I did read an interview where she talked about being approached by one of the big syndication companies, I can't remember which one, about doing some sort of, um, you know, gay or, or lesbian characters for a new comic strip. And she said it was her her sort of her, her one shot at mainstream cartooning and she didn't she didn't take it. Around the time of Fun Home, she did an interview where she was talking about how her version of queer stories was not glamorous. And she mentioned a show like The L Word, where that was made for heterosexual audiences. Right. Uh, that was is the term lipstick lesbian. Yes, where they're all really attractive, and they wear a lot of lingerie. Um, and I still feel that in the comics world, we're not getting enough of these type of stories, or it is not as much representation. Even in the superhero world, that's been a big problem. Mm-hmm. And 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 Marvel Comics recently have tried to introduce some more LGBTQ characters. But unfortunately, most of the time, they're written by a lot of white men. They got a lot of flack for that. And they kind of botched their launch of this whole new kind of... They kind of did a, a, a like one of those... I don't want to call it a reboot. But essentially, every once in a while, they'll they'll do this kind of company-wide redirection and they did this by introducing a bunch of new characters and they kind of botched it and they said their sales were low and unfortunately they kind of didn't they kept a lot of the characters but they jettisoned a lot of the series uh and it's sad because comic books aren't good at bringing in new audiences right well i mean so did they launch like solo books for yeah for a like, number of characters. like gay superheroes yeah there was uh it wasn't just that it was like you know their big thing was about representation mm-hmm. so they had an an Asian character that was a Hulk Iceman came out as gay mm-hmm. <laughs> it's actually Iceman from the past who traveled to the future comic books don't yeah, think about it it's already confusing so yeah they... super confusing uh, they introduced Ms Marvel Kamala Khan and she's Muslim. So they're trying to do all these things, but they not a lot of them worked because they didn't put in enough effort required to launch something like this and to give it some staying power. Yeah. And instead they turned around and said, like, see, comic book fans don't want representation, which is super shitty. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, the other the big pop culture dust up right now is that the the Little Mermaid is going to be black in Disney's yeah. live action. Yeah. I didn't I didn't realize all these. Right-wing nutjobs were cryptozoologists, but they all apparently have really strong opinions about yeah. They're trying magical to use, f- fictional fucking creatures. They're trying to use science to to explain that. So dumb. Who gives a shit? I don't know. It's I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't. Well, I don't know. You know, it's yeah. it's just, it is it's just sort of baffling what people get so threatened by. Yeah, because it's not like yeah, it's not even defensive. It's it's straight up. Fear and I, I think the bigger problem is that if we don't elevate these voices or look for more people to tell these stories, it's just going to remain status quo. Mm-hmm. So people like to push back about like, oh, well, if we do more of this or give them the advantage, then you're taking away this. But that's not the point of it. Yeah. There are entire libraries <laughs> full uh, of, of, of hundreds of years worth of stories by white guys. 
And it's all, like I said, you know, beyond the particulars, this is a very universal story of coming of age. Yeah. Um, I found a lot to identify in this right. book. And I am not a lesbian. Right. Yeah, that inability to sort of see past your own shit. Well, isn't, isn't that the point of stories, really, is to to empathize with other people? You'd think so. I hope so. I mean, that's what interests me. Right. But then you hear lots of people say, like, well, I can't relate to that, but I can relate to Tony Stark. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. I, yeah, no, I don't understand. It's it's And, you know, that, that when, when things get sort of cordoned off into, you know, this is a this is an LGBT comic. This is um, this is a black movie. Yeah. This is an Asian movie. Alison Bechtel talked about that a lot where she just wanted it to be a story, a comic. Mm-hmm. She didn't want it have to have to be the lesbian story. And she does that in her comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, where she brought in uh, the scope of the story and included lots of different characters. And it's not just exclusively about uh, lesbians anymore. But, you know, even if it were... Uh, yeah, it doesn't matter. Y- there's nothing that excludes you from engaging with it and yeah. empathizing with people going through regular human shit. I just got mad. <laughs> Get mad, Tony. Yeah. You tell him. So, Tony, now that you've read Fun Home, what would you recommend to someone who's who wants to use that as a springboard for other stories? The recommendation I'm going to make to myself personally, is I would love to read um, the follow-up to the, the book about her relationship yeah, with her mother. And, and, and the fact that it was this uh, multi-generational family drama set in a funeral home um, made me immediately want to go back and revisit Six Feet Under. Oh, yeah. Which, um, yeah. you know, deals with a lot of the same things. Um, the youngest family member is a teenager, so you've got that sort of coming-of-age element. Um, one of the two brothers is gay, and he's sort of... Um, Revealing that to his family after the the unexpected passing of their father, yeah, hits on a lot of similar themes. I actually don't know that I ever watched the whole thing. Now that I think about it, Six Feet Under. Yeah, I think I watched all but the last season. All but the last season. Mm-hmm. It's funny because anytime anyone talks about that show, it's always about the finale. Everyone's always right. like, "It's the greatest finale of all time." Oh well, that's what people way to say. set the bar. I d- I disagree. I think the last ten minutes are good, and people remember the last ten oh, minutes. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, so that'd be that'd be uh, that'd be my pick. How about you, Matt? Um, so I'm going to recommend a couple of things. Great. Uh, one of them is American Splendor, the comic. Oh, I, that great! I've never read that. I've seen the movie. Yeah, the comic is is it's kind of inconsistent. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's good in totality. It's just fascinating because again, it's an autobiographical story uh, by Harvey Picar, and he was this kind of office worker, you know, filing stuff and wrote this comic on the side. Uh, and it gets into the mundanity of his life and his frustrations with with his job and his, with living. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's really interesting. Um, he used a lot of artists, uh, R. Crumb being the most famous. Who was portrayed by the voice of Dr. Venture, James Urbaniak in the movie. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the movie in a long time. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to recommend is this comic from uh, a couple of years ago called My Favorite Thing is Monsters. And it's by Emil Ferris. And it's another loosely, I wouldn't say it's entirely autobiographical, but it's loosely based on her life. And uh, it also deals with her sexuality, her obsession with horror movies and pulp novels and science fiction and B-movies. 
and she's trying to solve the murder of um, her upstairs neighbor who was a Holocaust survivor. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, it's pretty heavy. What's interesting about this comic is that it's not really panel-based. Like, each page looks like she drew it on, like, you know, the lined... Like notebook paper? Notebook paper with the three-hole punch. So there's the punches on each paper with all the lines, and it's like pen and ink. Uh, And sometimes it's heavily detailed, the illustrations... And sometimes it's super cartoony, but it's great because it's the illustrations will kind of circle around and close in on itself. So she doesn't really adhere to structures too much. Uh, It's a fascinating book, uh, beautiful art uh, and an interesting read. Uh, Very similar to Fun Home, uh, but very different in in other ways. So great. Yeah. Cool. So uh, what are we doing next time? What are we doing next time? (laughs) Uh, so next time we're going to have a guest on the show. Uh, we are going to be joined by writer Brian Raftery, who earlier this year released the book Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen, which nice. uh, was a really fun read uh, looking at how 1999 was sort of the, the last real weird year for mainstream Hollywood. Uh, but he's going to be on. We're going to talk about the book. And uh, he has never really uh, watched a lot of X-Files. So we, we picked four Monster of the Week episodes that we both really like, asked him to take a look at those. Yeah. And we're going to see, see what he thinks. This will be the first time that we're in the two of us have seen uh, the subject of the episode and we'll be introducing it to someone else. Sure. And I, I, I'm, I'm really more of a casual X-Files fan. Sure. I certainly got a lot of um, gaps. Yeah. Um, I watched every single episode three years ago. Wow. Yeah, I, I started to around that time. Yeah. They're long seasons. It took me a little over a year to watch mm-hmm. it all. Yeah, and I started watching the show as it aired, uh, I think, if not past its peak, right as it was peaking. I had watched it in pieces originally and kind of dropped off probably halfway through. Uh, so I revisited it a few years ago and watched the whole thing, including the newest seasons that uh, premiered a few years ago great yeah so it'll be fun fun to talk about yeah it's gonna be a lot of fun i can't wait to to chat about the book with him as well like yeah i said it was a cool read so 1999 is a is a good year for movies mm-hmm. absolutely yeah i can't believe there was ever a year where a studio released something as strange as being john malkovich so yeah or as bold and and thoughtful as the matrix mm-hmm. which is hugely successful cool all right i'll see you then all righty Thanks for listening to What Did We Miss? You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at What Did We Miss? And you can find previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And thanks, as always, to the What's Your Writers Club in downtown Providence for hosting us. You can follow them on Instagram and Twitter at What's Your Club, and you can get more information about what they do on their website at whatscheerclub.org.